Welcome to the Gospel to Gillette podcast, episode four. I'm your host, Nick. In this episode, we sat together with Pastor Toby Holt, uh, Pastor Phil Jones, and Pastor Don White to discuss the implications of Christ's death and resurrection and why that's good news and good news for the whole world and in particular Gillette. Okay, so what is Easter all about? Why do we celebrate it? Well, I would say it's it's a celebration that we and the Christian tradition honor because it it celebrates the victorious aspect of our faith, the consummation, completion of Christ's redemption for us. It's the event that that totally conveys the truth of our faith. Christ was given over, was given up. He died for our transgressions, but he was raised for our justification. Romans 4.25 says so. Mm. So, um, as we're doing this podcast now, we're in Passion Week, and um, so oftentimes we're we're reflecting on the, the days before Christ goes to the cross. And I guess that kind of makes me think of Jesus's life. Why did why did he come? Why did he live? Obviously, you said it's not just so he could be a moral example or um, anything like that. But what, what was the purpose of his life? Well, what, well, we talked about earlier with regards to um, to, to Christ uh, to Christ's life is his simple death would not have been sufficient to atone for the work of his people apart from. Uh, fulfilling the mandates of the law that we could not. If Christ is the second Adam, then he needed to come down and do what the first Adam couldn't, which is to keep the law in its fullness. Uh, when he was baptized, uh, he came to John the, the Baptist to ask to be baptized. Uh, John the Baptist at first said, no, no dice. <laughs> I, I need to be baptized by you, uh, not uh, the other way around. And Jesus said, but let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. And that was an example of what he did across his entire life, which is, he fulfilled the mandates that were placed upon uh, those um, uh, those who were to be saved. He did everything that uh, that those who believe in him must do, and uh, it's important we realize that across the scope of his life, uh, this act of obedience, this fulfilling the mandates of the law and living obediently unto Christ, that uh, apart from that. Uh, we could not be saved. We think only generally of the passive obedience by which he laid down his life, and we uh, marry up our salvation to that, to the, to the passive o- obedience, the fact that he willingly underwent the uh, the curse of the law, the law and the, the wrath of God on our behalf. And there's, you know, obviously we need that. Without that, there is no uh, celebration this Easter. But we also need to celebrate uh, the life that he lived, because if he had been a sinner, if he had neglected the mandates of the law, then he would not have been a perfect substitution for us. My other issue I was thinking about <clears throat> the first question, well, why do we even celebrate Easter, is Easter is really kind of taking the back seat to Christmas in, in uh, right. American, at least. because you don't get presents. <laughs> right. It hasn't been marketed the same as Christmas has. And it's easy for, for people to think that Christmas is where it's really at, and Easter is kind of the second-run holiday. And that's, Christmas is where it starts, but 
Easter is where it comes to a the fulfillment, the, the fullness of what Christ started at Christmas. His birth, everything points and leads to His death and resurrection. And so it's not the second second tier event in Christ's life, it's the, the ultimate. It's the it's what everything was, was heading towards. So one of the thoughts I had is this last Sunday we, we were talking about uh, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And it almost seems like he wasn't very triumphant because everything kind of went haywire on him. Yeah. He comes in as his conquering king and then his disciples abandon him. One betrays him. The people turn who are cheering him as a as his coming king, they turn on him and demand his death. He doesn't appear to be all that triumphant, really, <laughs> from a human standard. But in in God's standard, he did exactly what he was supposed to. He 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 was fully perfect in that that obedience to his father. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of say that gospel to Gillette is about Easter. <laughs> well, everything you know, everything we say and do uh, reflects the uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of, of Christ. You know, the, the question to ask at the, at the outset is it's funny. You, you answer, Don answered it, you answered it, and now I, I'll get a shot to answer there about what is Easter, what's the significance. And, you know, thinking about it, it's the, the, all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament pointed forward to, the, to that event, and uh, all of the, uh, the New Testament essentially reflects upon the, the singular um, event, or at least the events of the, the crucifixion followed by the resurrection. In the Old Testament, you talk about... Uh, the, the promise that the seed would come in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall, God shows up. Uh, the first prophecy in all of Scripture is about the one who must come. Uh, he would crush the head of Satan. Satan would bruise his heel, and we understand the bruising of the heel to, to be what we uh, see on, on, uh, on taking place on Calvary. But it was only the bruising of the heel, not... Uh, and nothing more in the sense that uh, it was not... Uh, Satan didn't... didn't uh, was unable to destroy the seed of the woman. In any case, if you go from Genesis through the Old Testament, uh, you go to Isaiah, and, and you see in Isaiah 53 the, the expansive overview of, of the, the crucifixion, expansive overview of what must happen to the one who would come and why it must happen. You know, uh, uh, all our iniquities are placed upon him. By his stripes we're, we're healed. It was understood from the, the, the law and the prophets that one had to come, uh, that there was this Messiah that uh, was anticipated throughout the Old Testament, which is why uh, the Jewish people in Christ's day were, were looking for such a one. Of course, they had a very misguided view of what such a one would do because they weren't properly instructed in what the, the law and the prophets actually said about this guy. And so when he showed up, uh, his own people didn't, didn't recognize him for who for who he was. But the Old Testament pointed forward to to the to the cross, and then it, as you said, Phil, when talking about what Paul said, we preach Christ and Him crucified. Uh, the the epistles, everything we see in the New Testament reflects upon the cross and the work that took place there, and uh, the fact that uh, that Christ didn't remain there, but uh, He was resurrected on the third day and sits, sits down at the right hand of the Father. So anything we do in Christian circles um, has to be yoked to that to that premise. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, I, I think there there's three key 
reasons why he had to die. First of all, he had to take the death penalty for us because that was over us. Romans 5.8 says that he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a substitutionary aspect of his death that was required by our sinfulness and our inability to be able to, to make the payment to satisfy that debt. So Christ died for us because the death penalty was upon us. Then secondly, we could say that he also, in Galatians 3, starting in, actually in verse 10 all the way to verse 14, it talks about how Christ took the curse of the law from us. And the curse of the law, we could say in our day, we might say the curse of being good enough to be acceptable to God. We were not able to do that. And the curse that was upon us of having to be good enough was put upon Christ when he died on the cross. And, and he fulfilled the scripture that said, Cursed is everyone, anyone who hangs on the tree. And Christ took the curse of the law from us, being made a curse for us. And in the verses previous to Galatians 3.13, he talks about the heavy burden that was on us, that no man could be justified by the law, which is what most people that are listening to this podcast were not believers and don't, or perhaps don't understand the significance of what we're talking about, believe that's their way to God, is being good enough. And even believers, many believers that sit in our churches, would answer the question, how am I going to make it to heaven? How can I be made right with God? And we say, well... You know, don't kill people, and if you do, make sure you serve your time and do all that stuff. But, but basically, be good, and hopefully, you know, your good's going to outweigh your bad at the end of the day, and that's what most people put their faith in. But that's the curse of the law, mm-hmm. is trying to be good enough to please God. Christ took that from us, but he had to do that because we were not able to do that. The, the third thing we could say is is Second Corinthians 5, 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So sin was the barrier. We could not pay for our sins. God put on Christ all of our sins. He was made to be sin. He who was sinless was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness, be made right in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. Okay, what does it mean to be justified? I would say justification has two aspects to it. The declaration in a court of law that we are not guilty, Mm -hmm. even though we are guilty, but because the righteousness that we receive to make us righteous comes from outside of us. It's an alien righteousness we don't have ourselves. But it's it's also Christ imputing his perfect righteousness. The only one that fulfilled the law was Christ, and he imputes that righteousness to our account, so that we are made righteous by the life of Christ. That's why we put our faith totally in Christ, because we realize that he is the only one that we can put our faith in for our salvation. Let me go back to the law real quick, because the reason for the crucifixion was really the law. Without the law, there's no acknowledgement of sin. the, The point of the law was to drive home to the human heart our own condition. Now, our own condition is one of fallenness, of, of brokenness, and, and the sad reality is, is that none of us are righteous, no, not one. And the law is, a, is the, the vehicle by which that is driven home in our hearts. And the, the reality, of course, 
in the Old Testament and the given of the law is you cannot be made righteous by the law. So no one can be made righteous by the law. Um, you just mentioned that people try and create righteousness and they're hoping to get into to heaven and, and seek God's favor by righteousness of their own, but it's impossible. And so the, re, the stark reality is, and, and anyone who has come to Christ realized at some point along their journey that their own righteousness wasn't going to cut it. That I am a failure spiritually. I'm a failure as far as righteousness and purity is concerned. And I need Christ's righteousness attributed to me. <clears throat> I cannot do this on my own. And it's that vehicle of the cross whereby that is accomplished. That His righteousness pays for my unrighteousness. And that stark reality of, of Christ becoming a curse for us is pretty amazing. As God Himself upon the cross being made a curse because of my unrighteousness. My sins are being laid upon Him. And that, that reality that, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to turn His back on His own Son because the sins, my sins were upon Him and God can't have any relationship with sin. And that's the reality of the cross is, is all of our sins were put upon Him and He paid for them there. Yeah, the, there's another pastor that, that in terms of uh, kind of gauging his audience's understanding of what the gospel is, the question he asks from the garden is when Jesus was in the garden and he said, let this cup pass from me, and he's sweating like drops of blood. When he says, let this cup pass from me, what's in the cup? You know, that's a great question. And to anyone who's listened to the podcast, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd ask you to consider what, what was in the cup, what was Christ uh, concerned about there. And the answer that I've heard repeatedly when I ask this question is some uh, variation on what was going to happen on the cross. It was the, 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 it was the uh, crucifixion itself. It was the, the cat and nine tails. It was the, the scourging. It was the beating. It was the humiliation. It was the pain and the agony that he was going to endure. Most people respond to that question about what was in the cup and what he wanted to have pass from him as dealing with uh, the, the agonies that he was going to endure in the crucifixion. And uh, the pastor who I really appreciate to, speaks on this, he, he, made, uh, he made the point that you know, across the centuries, we've had tons of martyrs go to their death. Crucifixion, you know, uh, lit on fire to, to uh, light uh, you know, Nero's gardens, all sorts of horrific things have happened. And we have all sorts of recordings of the martyrs throughout history, in many cases, going to their death uh, singing. And mm-hmm. so the question is, would the captain of our salvation uh, be weaker than those who followed, you know, followed him to the grave um, with great confidence? And, and the answer is, of course not. I'm sure he was no fan of what was going to happen with the, the agonist because he was fully man. But what was in the cup specifically was the wrath of God. And that's where we get to this issue of justification. He understood that the wrath of God against sin was going to be poured out upon him. Mm-hmm. And not just the wrath of sin, God, uh, the wrath of God against one man's sin or two man's sin, but all of the, you know, all of the chosen, all of those who uh, would, would be adopted as children into the kingdom, the wrath of God was poured out uh, upon, uh, upon them. Or excuse me, poured out upon Christ um, uh, as a substitution for all of them.
So that's what's um, amazing about the cross is that Christ anticipated what was to come and he didn't deviate to the left or the, to the right. Uh, he went straight to the cross even when others tried to dissuade him like Peter saying, no, you know, heaven forbid, it can't be so. You know, he, he told Peter, uh, get behind me, Satan. He, he had a, a singular purpose from which he came to the world. It included the cross, and unfortunately uh, for us, it also includes the resurrection. Isn't that interesting, though, that we, we take the, the agonies of Christ and we humanize it to the point where I can understand the fact that he doesn't want to get hurt. I can't mm-hmm. understand the idea of God's wrath being poured out upon him. So I humanize Jesus even more and de-emphasize his divinity because I can understand the physical pain and torment. That's relatable. It's relatable. And so that's what we focus on rather than the fact that it's all about our sin being poured out on him and then God's response to that sin. It's a little overwhelming. Thus, it's easier to humanize Christ even further and de-emphasize the divinity and what the true work on that cross was. That payment for sin, that that covering over, not just covering over of our sin like the Old Testament, but actual payment, true and full, upon that cross. That is something that is just beyond us. Therefore, Easter bunnies are just way easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's because we, we have a low view of sin. When we see Christ on the cross, it shows the deadliness of sin. The Bible yeah. says for the wages of sin is death, and Christ fully demonstrates that by taking all of our sins and then as as you're pointing out, Toby, the wrath of God being poured out upon him. So we see the willingness of Christ to take our sin, see how deadly sin is, and then we also see the love of God, that he is just and the justifier of those. You know, he's the one who who says, you know, this has to be paid for, but he's also the one that provides the means by which we can be justified. But at the center of that is how deadly sin is, which I think is difficult for us in our culture today to really see. In the Old Testament, there's an event called Passover. What is its relationship with Easter? You know, the entire events of the resurrection have to be seen in light of the Passover because there is literally almost a, a point-for-point connection between what you see in Exodus uh, Absolutely. 12 and the Passover mm-hmm. and the actual uh, nature and means and, and intent of the uh, crucifixion itself. Um, you know, as an example, we just celebrated uh, Palm Sunday. And in our congregation, the emphasis was when Jesus came into the city, they weren't celebrating Palm Sunday. They were celebrating Lamb Selection Day. This was the day five days prior to um, uh, to when Christ was, was, uh, was to be res- crucified. This was the day in which the people went out and sought the perfect lamb for which to offer as their Passover sacrifice. And the irony was that as they were going out seeking the perfect lamb, the you know, unblemished lamb, in order to sacrifice on the basis of what they'd been instructed to do way back in, in Exodus, way back in the time of Moses, in the midst of, of their seeking to fulfill the law, well, into the city comes the perfect lamb, the Paschal lamb. Uh, the, the lamb that John the Baptist recognizes, the lamb who, who takes away the sins of the world. Um, I mean, you could you could go uh, if you wanted to crack open Exodus 12 and just look at all the the, the ways in which uh, God instructed the Israelites and how they were to prepare the lamb and exactly what they were to do and the nature of the blood being put 
uh, out on, on the lintel. Uh, all these things looked forward and anticipated the events of the crucifixion. Passover, <clears throat> lamb in, in Exodus, with then the freedom that the, the slaves are then freed from, from bondage and they're released and, mm. and, and they're celebrating and, and joyful because they've been released from their bondage. And that's exactly what Christ the Passover lamb does as well. It's the, the biggest event in, in the Old Testament of the Jewish nation is that freedom from, from slavery and bondage and, and the freedom of, of going out into um, following God in, in the wilderness. It's also ours. We're not out in the wilderness, but we have that freedom now in Christ because He spilt His blood. And so now we're following the same framework as the Old Testament. So now the the climax of Easter, the resurrection. What um, describe the resurrection uh, to me, and and what was the point of that? What's why did Christ have to be raised from the dead? Why doesn't he stay in the grave? I really like the. <clears throat> the, the of course, we can talk about all the the fine points of the resurrection and the differences in the different gospels and and some of those interesting. Um, aspects. I really like how Christ shows up to the two men in the road to Emmaus, and he explains to them from Scripture, which would have been the Old Testament, mm-hmm. everything that had to happen, and he, and he really opened their eyes to why this happened and what was the point of this. Mm-hmm. And he used the Old Testament Scriptures to do that. And it opened their eyes, and they realized why this had to happen. I think the resurrection, again, emphasizes the completion of the work of redemption. Had he just mm-hmm. been crucified, obviously, had he just been buried and not raised, the completion of the fullness of our redemption would not have taken place, nor would have our justification taken place. Because, again, going back to Romans 4.25, he was delivered over for our sins, mm-hmm. and he was raised for our justification. So without him being raised from the dead, the spiritual significance of that is that the work of redemption would not have been completed. And that's probably why the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, that Jesus actually physically raised from the dead, has been so controversial within liberal theologians and people who are skeptical of the faith, denying his bodily resurrection, first of all because it seems preposterous that somebody could be raised from the dead, but also because there is a theological objection they have because if Christ you know Paul said if Christ had not been raised from the dead then we are still in our sins well if I don't see a need for sin to be taken care of if I believe that man is essentially good I believe that you know all dogs go to heaven and all of this so I don't see a need for that but Paul says we're still in our sins if Christ is not raised from the dead so people who object to calling man sinful will object also to the bodily resurrection because they see no real need for it. It seems like a a silly thing to associate yourself with, some mythological story of being raised from the dead, which we know can't really happen. And then the reason people tell us that he was raised from the dead really isn't all that important anyway because sin isn't that big of an issue because we're all essentially good. So a lot of things are tied to this, and we see a lot of opposition to the doctrine of the resurrection, but for Christians, it is the centrality of our faith. It's the culmination. 
and the completion of our redemption through Christ. Anybody else? The the cross is a stumbling block, and it's going to continue to be a stumbling block. That's not going to change anytime soon. I had a seminary professor tell me that he would not include on any of his literature, um, business cards, or anything like that, the symbol of the cross, because it was offensive to other people. And what an amazing thing for someone, a seminary professor, to say that he wasn't going to include something that was a, that was a offensive um, article. It's like a Jew being ashamed of the Star of David or something. It's it's fantastically horrific that the the idea of being offended by the cross, the world would shape my theology and, or my presentation of my my belief that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice and the culmination of, of everything is found in that cross and that resurrection. To to throw that off and say that it's it's an offense and therefore we shouldn't present it is, is just nonsensical. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the resurrection is also the idea of the first fruits. If Christ wasn't resurrected, then we have no hope of a resurrection either. And so really what we are becomes just just a social club aiming towards um, good morals and, and good works. Because if there's nothing after we, we pass away, after we die, if there is no hope of a resurrection, then, then what's the point of all this? Are we just obliterated and there's just nothing left? Or, or what happens there? Well, Christ is that guarantee of our salvation because he was the first fruits of salvation. So what does Christ's death and resurrection mean to us in 2012? I'd say that's the hope of the gospel is, is that I don't have to die in my sins, that I can place my faith in one who truly has pleased the Father and has paid fully for my sins, and then I can, when I die, know that I will be raised again as well, because as, as Phil mentioned, Christ was the first fruit, so I have hope for the future as well. I have, my sins can be taken care of, I have a purpose for my life now, and I have a future hope of living eternally. Another, another point that's important on, on, on Easter morning is uh, other people have been raised from the dead. I mentioned Lazarus, and there's, there's a little girl, and there, there's, there's others who who through Christ's ministry were raised from the dead, and or the apostles' ministry were raised from the dead. So Christ is not unique in the resurrection, in that others have also been resurrected. What's truly unique is, is number one, he was God. Number two, he didn't then subsequently die again, because everyone else that's ever been resurrected, they still died. They still lived their life and then they died. Christ was that, that secondary thing. Is, is not just a resurrection. He then ascended into heaven. Again, that idea of that, that divinity, and he is God. And he didn't die. He didn't live out his natural life and then perish. No one else in history can make that claim. He is the only one. Well, and to, to play off of that, in all the cases where Lazarus or, or anyone else in Scripture was resurrected, it always was from a power emanating from outside themselves. It was a transcendent source 
uh, by which they were resurrected, whereas Christ made the claim that I lay down my life and I take it back up again. Right. Christ, uh, you know, God in the flesh, uh, alone had the ability to effect his own resurrection, and that's nothing that anyone else could, uh, could hope to say. And um, to build up what, what Pastor Don had, had mentioned, um, the chapter that, which Paul deals with the resurrection the most completely is in 1 Corinthians 15, and the point he makes is repeatedly about the first fruits. He says, look, if, 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 if Christ is still in the grave, then, then our faith is worthless. In fact, we're, we're to be pitied because we have fallen for this great ruse. Above all people. Right, above all people, we, we are just the most pitiable if we believe this, and it's not true. But the fact is that it is true, and because it's true, that's the source and, and basis of our hope. Because if Christ was resurrected, then we know that we too shall be resurrected. Because one of the things he promised was he said that when he, where he goes, he goes to prepare a, a place for us. And when he returns, he returns to take us with, with him, that where he is, we might be also. So we have to, to rejoice that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's a promise of our resurrection. And there's a promise that, uh, that where he has gone, we'll, we will also be. Yeah, so what is the effectiveness of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ? It's the foundation stone upon everything that we, we do as Christians. It's, it's the, the heartbeat of, of a Christian would be the fact that Christ paid for our sins, he died for them, he was resurrected and triumphant over them, first fruits of our own resurrection in the future. And so every bit of our, our ministry, not just as pastors, but also as everyone in the church, universal, their, their focus is now to spread that good news. And that is the good news of, of, of Christ. Is People are no longer need to be dead in their sins. There is a salvation hope for them. Works do not have to be performed to do this. Um, and so the very point of the gospel of Gillette is to share this good news, this gospel of salvation with people. Because as we understand it, people in this world are lost in their sins. They're, they're desperate and they're hopeless. And we have the solution to that. We have the gospel, the good news liberty found in Christ, salvation. And that's what this is all about, is sharing that good news with, with those who who are desperate and, and they're still in their sins. In Second Corinthians 5.15 it says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We're, we're also set free from ourselves. And we... <laughs> wow. And so we're no longer living for ourselves. Part of the call to Christianity is that, again, it's not just me and Jesus got a good thing going, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and now I'm under grace, so I'm just going to live however I want to. But I've, that fundamental sinfulness that is contained in the word selfishness, which basically is one of the essences of, of what makes us foul, is, is no longer the center of my life. It's not me. It's about other people. I'm now modeling the life of Christ. Christ didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, while I'm still alive, my life is given over to follow his example and to live not just for myself, but to live for others. And I think that's the hope that we have, too. Mm. So now I'm not bound up in trying to 
please God or work, you know, do my works for God, now I'm free to serve others. We're set through by Christ. Well, the idea of being set free is, is uh, again, what we can rejoice in because it's not just transactional. We tend to think of, mm-hmm. uh, we, we can, if we take the, if we, Take a merely theological view of Scripture, and by theological I mean merely an academically theological view of Scripture. We can talk about the imputation and justification and the legal and forensic elements of what took place, uh, but we can forget the joy that we have that we're set free from what enslaved us, and that was sin, death, the curse of the law, the wrath of God. All these things no longer apply. And what's kind of uh, kind of groovy, if I can use a t- completely non-theological word, what's kind of <laughs> groovy about that is that what that means is that not only am I set free from the from the guilt and the condemnation of the law, but I'm set free from its corruption and its power and its its authority over me. Uh, the, the you know pollution the pollution and corruption of sin still taints us, but uh, through Christ's atoning work, He continues to sanctify us. He continues to conform us into His image. If there's a sense in which our salvation is past, present, and future, and and even in the here and now, I'm going to be a different person next week, next year than I was. Uh, last week, last year, because of the power of, of, of God in me through through what Christ has done, you know, and that uh, what we emphasized this past week in in our church setting was again that when we approach the cross, we should see if this God condescended to come down in, in the form of a man to endure the life that He endured to hang upon a cross. Uh, to, to die with, with the shame and humiliation that came with that, to empty himself of his you know, divine rights and privileges, uh, as, we, as we see in Philippians 2. He did all these things in order to die for me. Well, what should that tell me about how much he cares about me in the here and now? Because sometimes, again, we tend to think, okay, he saved me, and now God just sits up in heaven and you know, has his eyebrows constantly raised and he's, he's constantly irritated with me because I'm such a silly, goofy uh, <laughs> you know, sinner. But this is the guy who laid down his life for me. I have to believe, I have to understand that he cares for me desperately and he's working with me, through me, in the midst of my anxieties and hurts and pains. If he cared enough to save me from death, surely he cares enough to help me deal with the problems that I face in life. So the resurrection just gives me great hope that not only does he have the power and the authority to do all that he has said, but he has the positive inclination to do so. He has the good intentions for me and for my future. And so that at Easter time gives me a great, just fills, fills me with hope. One of the uh, most joy-ridden Bible verses that I know is, uh, there is no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. You go through Romans 7 and all that histronics that Paul kind of points out. I, I want to do this, I end up doing that, I, I don't want to sin and yet I, I do. And he, He's so frustrated. And then you come out of that, and what a wretched man I am, he declares. And where's his hope found? His hope found is in Jesus Christ. And then he proceeds in the next chapter to say, there is no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. His hope, at the end of that chapter, and then the, the pronunciation in the, in the chapter 8, it's all found in the fact that the resurrection, the, the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, that, that whole battle that he was talking about there, it was, it was dealt with on the cross, and now, because of Christ's resurrection and, and ascension, 
there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, there is joy in living. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be a lemon-sucking Christian who's, there is no <laughs> joy in my life and I have, I'm just daily struggling and fighting sin and, and trying to, to work that out in my life. No. Part of that sanctification process, and as Toby said, is, is Christ in me. What a joy that those words are. Christ in me. It's not me fighting this fight alone. That's the joy and the hope of, of Easter. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. For more information, go to gospeltogillette.org. That's gospeltogillette.org. Be listening for future podcasts. This podcast is a production of KLWD Radio.